You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We've been talking about the book of Daniel. This is the last uh, Sunday to do so, and we've been talking about how to interpret Daniel. Um, and we've looked at um, the, uh, uh, everything from the value of symbols, how the symbols in Daniel are not intended to be obfuscations, but revelation. Um, a lot of people read these visions as if they were deliberately mysterious, but it's the reverse. The, the symbols were meant to be obviously revelatory, um, rather than making you work extra hard. They're supposed to be obvious. When a ram, we, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this one, but when a ram faces off against a goat in the vision in chapter 8, it's not supposed to be a trick o- over who's supposed to win. You're supposed to know something about rams and goats. And it's supposed to be obvious, but of course we often don't know much about rams and goats these days. So maybe you do have to watch one five-minute YouTube video on rams and goats in order to understand them a little bit if you're not used to being around them. Uh, But the symbols are meant to be things that were fairly obvious to the original hearers. Uh, Then we talked about time and geography. Um, That was a little bit more... um, uh, it'd be a little harder to sh- go through that one real short, but uh, we talked about the use of time and the use of space, geography, in the book, uh, and how relevant that is. Uh, one of the visions takes place during the Feast of the Passover, but you wouldn't know that if you didn't know the calendar. So it doesn't say it's during the, pa- the, the vision is during the Passover. You're just supposed to know by the date provided that it's Passover. So you'd have to know something about the Jewish calendar, as I'm sure all of us have that mes- mem- memorized. Uh, but, you, you know, you Bible study Bibles and stuff have that information often. Then we talked about internal logic last week, which I think is the most important one we've done. Um, if there was one I'd recommend, it would be that one, uh, to talk about how the visions themselves have an internal logic. They work on their own terms. And uh, it's crucial to understand the internal logic of these visions before you try to do anything else including even reading the interpretations in the second half of, of the visions. Often you have a vision followed by an interpretation. But uh, instead of trying to decode everything and identify everything and then read the interpretation, how it decodes things, the first thing you should be doing is letting the, the, um, the internal logic of the vision work on its own. We talked about the statue where its legs are of iron and uh, the head of gold and talked about how that couldn't be reversed on its internal logic because uh, gold isn't very strong. You put the iron legs at the bottom to hold it up, but then we found out its feet were of a pottery and iron mixed together, and out in the desert winds, you can just imagine the thing uh, blowing like a skyscraper in New York City, but without the same strength <laughs> in its foundation. So you can see the thing's going to fall over on its own terms. It's internal logic. It's already doomed. It's a, it's a failure. Uh, as, as a uh, manufactured artifice, it's going to collapse because it was made by humans. But that's not the end of it, actually. That's not how it collapses. But it is doomed whether uh, it gets judged by God or not. And then today we're actually finally talking about uh, the uh, juicy bits of the actual interpretation. So last week we discussed the four beasts in chapter 7, and today we're going to read start by reading just the interpretation of that and then use it uh, not so much to analyze every detail of chapter 7 and its main message, but to use it as a kind of template for how to read the interpretations. How do you interpret the interpretations? Another 
thing we have to deal with. All right, so ch- chapter 7, verse 15 of uh, the book of Daniel starts out, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made me to know uh, the interpretation of the things. And even if you didn't don't f- aren't familiar with this vision, you'll hear at least a bunch of it here in the interpretation. Uh, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up, and the little horn, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn was made, this, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, hair like wool and garments white as snow. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the, t- and the time uh, came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And thus he said, As for the fourth, fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. This is the little horn. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Uh, So, uh, when we uh, look at the... actual interpretations given, the first thing we're going to do, it's natural enough now finally to get to this, which is to actually decode the vision. That is to identify whatever the interpretation itself actually identifies. Um, So, we have an identifier here. These four untamed wild beasts that were sent onto the land from the sea to devour all flesh. We are told that they are what, according to this interpretation? What are the four beasts? Anyone p- catch it? Yeah, four, it says four kings, but then it's clear that the kings are just the embodiment of the kingdoms. That is, these are four independent sovereignties. Four independent sovereignties. And they are, uh, it's clear that they're in opposition to Israel. That is to say, they are Gentile kingdoms, Gentile powers. Okay, now, once we hear that, that should ring a bell if we've been reading the book of Daniel, because this is actually the second vision in the book, where there were four parts to the vision. The first one was this colossus statue that had its four body parts, the head, and then the chest and arms, and then the midriff, and then the legs. 
So you have four parts to the body and there are four parts to it. And we're told there, aren't we? That, uh, at least it's implied as we go on through that vision, that those are four independent sovereignties as well. Right? Uh, four independent kingdoms. Uh, so, um, which kingdoms? I'm, I'm sorry, does it say it? Does, does it say it here? That was the question was, does this identify what they are? Does it state which any of the four kingdoms here? It didn't say what the four kingdoms were, did it? And that, of course, now creates controversy, disagreement, which is what most people are familiar with in the book of Daniel. Uh, but it's not quite as opaque as it sounds. It's not quite as unclear. All right? Because we've already noticed, we didn't talk about it today, we talked about it last week or the week before, how the entire structure of the book is five stories in the first half, five stories in the second half, and the stories run parallel to one another. So chapter 1 answers is answered in chapter 6, and chapter 2 is answered in chapter 7, and so on. And so the vision of the the Colossus with its four body parts representing four independent kingdoms. That was chapter 2. Now we're in chapter 7, which is another vision, not of a giant man, but of four wild, untamed beasts. You could not get more opposite, I suppose, than this, no this noble, glorious, awesome figure of a, of a human. And what actually humans can build things like this. You know, they can build skyscrapers, towering things like this. It's impressive. But these wild beasts are obviously untamed, uncivil, irrational, amoral, devouring creatures. That's their existence. And yet it's four independent kingdoms again. Uh, can governments be at, once, in one, at one time these noble, glorious, impressive uh, uh, communities and also be wild, ravening beasts that devour flesh? Yes. Can they not? Read the Battle of uh, Leningrad. <laughs> More people lost than Americans and Brits combined in all of World War II were lost at Leningrad alone. Uh, so yes, governments, we all know, don't we, can be both of these things often at the same time. It's a fitting, if you really want to get the full picture of human government, you can't just look at this awesome, inspiring glorious artifice that governments make or create, you have to look at the other side of the coin as well and get a measured evaluation, which is what the book of Daniel is primarily about, a critique of these kingdoms. I forgot to mention, I don't know if I have, that I'm producing a reading guide on Daniel, not for sale, so this isn't a pitch for selling anything. It's uh, uh, their video format and uh, they'll be in our app when they're all done. I'm halfway through the book. So now they're just seen on YouTube, but uh, when I'm done uh, with all of them, then we'll put them into the app. Uh, we've got some other books, Romans and Titus, and I'll think I'll work on John or Matthew after that. But anyway, just trying to uh, help people think through these books, the whole of the book, of course, not just parts of it. Uh, so uh, we have this, uh, these two visions are interrelated. That's what we're seeing, aren't we? They're obviously interrelated. So if we go back to Daniel 2, and this is the part where I said it's just helpful today, probably to have a Bible or at least really good ears. In Daniel 2, when you see this uh, head, and Daniel offers the interpretation, the head of gold, the chest of silver, and so on, there, 
although it also says they're for independent sovereignties, sovereignties, it adds something that's not in chapter 7. It adds a very precise identification of one of those independent sovereignties. And that is, anyone know? Do you know? Uh, yeah, there are, no, 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 of the four kingdoms. Anyone know which one gets identified? Well, Daniel is interpreting the vision to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to him, you are the head of gold, directly. You are the man. Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> the better version of it, I guess. So, uh, than the one Nathan, I think you're referring to Nathan the prophet, yeah. Uh, so, we know that first one was Babylon. And so that allows us to then come over here to chapter 7 and say, is there anything in this vision that would indicate that we have someone different from Babylon or confirmatory that it's Babylon here too? And we didn't read it again today. We read it last week, but I'll describe the first beast again. He's a lion with, gold, with eagle's wings, but something happens strange to him. In the midst of his devouring all flesh, he suddenly loses his wings. And he stands up on two feet, and he is given the mind of a man. And that's the end of his devouring career. But if you have been reading Daniel, and you know the story of the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, you've read through chapter 4, where he was driven out for his pride and arrogance, he was driven out to live like a beast of the field. He lived like a beast, it says. And at the end of that story, what happens is he lifts his eyes up to heaven and his mind comes back to him. His sense of reason comes back to him and he is restored in his kingdom. And you see immediately then the obvious reference here to the lion and why the end of the lion is that his wings are plucked off and he stands up like a human and is given his reason back like a man. Okay? It's clearly a direct allusion to Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar. Right? So, there's not really any controversy in that. Actually, there isn't. I mean, if you're looking in even the highest scholarly literature, there's not really much controversy about that. Everyone's pretty much in agreement. Okay? Uh, now, who's next then? Who comes next? What's the next kingdom? And here... Uh, you don't have to go to a Bible commentary or Wikipedia, worse. You can go to Daniel because in Daniel chapter 5 we read the night that Belshazzar throws his, uh, his orgy party, drunken orgy party, that the hand comes out and writes on the wall and he's terrified and Daniel interprets it for him and he says to him, your kingdom is divided from you. One of the symbols on the wall is the symbol of division. It says in Hebrew, uh, or in Aramaic, uh, f uh, parsin, pharisin, like the word Pharisee, the separatists, you know, the dividers. But think of it as more like the symbol of division, you know, the, the horizontal line with the dot above and the dot below. That's what appeared on the wall. And Daniel said, uh, he looked at that and said, your kingdom is divided from you, meaning it's gone. Okay? You're separated from it. And then we're told the very last verse of the chapter is that very night, the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus invaded Babylon, under Darius, invaded ba Babylon and took over. So, within the book of Daniel, the kingdom that overtook Babylon was the kingdom of the 
Medo-Persian Empire. All right? So there we don't have to go uh, into any controversy because it's right there in the book. You see how we're, you see how to, in order to interpret the interpretations, we have to be really familiar with the details of the book. And so often, as I hear people discussing these things, debating these things, I think it would be much more fruitful if people knew the book better <laughs> when they're offering their strong opinions about these matters. Um, so, uh, or at least be very open to the details of the book if they don't know them, uh, so the discussion becomes more fruitful earlier. All right, so that takes care of the first two, the Babylonians and then the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, and then what? Well, in chapter 8, the next chapter is another vision. And it also has beasts, only, only two of the beasts. All right? So in chapter 8, we have a vision of two beasts. This is the ram and goat vision. All right? The ram has his, uh, his horns and the goat has... Uh, his big horn, which then is, uh, which then is turns into four horns, and then out of those four horns comes a little horn. All right. Uh, so, uh, what are these representing? Well, we're very thankful that in the interpretation here it says this, chapter twenty of verse eight. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Whew. Nice. Straight to the point. And the goat. What about the goat? And the goat is the king of Greece. Right there in the text. All right? Uh, so it's really nice to have these two facing off. Guess who wins between the ram and the... If you didn't know who would win between a ram and a goat. If you're ever asked to put money down. Or if you want to create some game among your friends where you can make some easy money. Have a goat and a ram face off against one another? Do they create AI fights between goats and rams? I don't know. Uh, to see who would win. Um, and uh, the goat should win, of course, because ram are sheep. They're dumb. If you didn't know, ram are a ram is a sheep. They're dumb. Goats are, you know, very smart. Go to YouTube, Twitter, watch all the videos on how smart goats are, <laughs> right? Uh, a lot of really funny videos of goats on the computer destroying, you know, I remember a policeman trying to come to a house to get to because get, a goat had gotten out and they were trying to get it. And uh, in the process of trying to get the goat, it got into the sheriff's car and just destroyed the inside of his car, <laughs> ate a bunch of his paperwork. Uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, goats, uh, goats should win. They're not, 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 they're smart. And you know how they're going to win. They're going to win because they're smarter. And that's a fitting image of Greece, isn't it? It's what we know of Greece, anyway. We think of the Greeks as the classical Greeks, the home of the, the first philosophers and so on. And democracy, pretty bright idea, and other such things. So, uh, all that to say, those things all seem, anyway, to line up very nicely that following the Medo-Persians, following the ram, the goat destroyed the ram, so that must be the third kingdom. It seems like it's all straightforward. Uh... But there's a bit of a snag right there. It all relates to this thing called the little horn. Because in chapter 7, just follow me for a second, you've got the four beasts. The fourth beast has ten horns, and out of those ten horns comes a little horn. The fourth beast. But now in chapter 8, the, there's only two beasts. The second one are the Greeks, 
The first one's the Medo-Persian Empire. And the little horn comes out of the goat, out of the four horns. But we earlier lined up from the book of Daniel that you have Babylon, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greeks, and then whatever that fourth beast is we haven't even talked about. But in chapter 7, it's out of the fourth beast's head, this little horn comes out. But in chapter 8, it's the Greeks. But if you follow that again, Babylon, Medo-Persians, Greece, that would be the third beast. So how could the little horn come out of the third beast, but then in chapter 8, but come out of the fourth beast in chapter 7? And now there's real controversy. There's lots of disagreement in the scholarship about this. And people say, I think we got those first ones wrong, they say. And this is the point where most people start to drop off. Right? I had interest up until this point. And now, I don't know, what is it, does it matter? I own, a, you know, I own an Australian Shepherd. Does it really matter to me beyond this, all this stuff about the beast? I don't know. It's not helping me with my beast. You know? like it's, you know, there's just a point where people just start to fade. Understandably, even, even it being God's Word, even them being Christians, they just start to feel a little bit like, eh, you know, it's getting, uh, getting a little, uh, gets a little long. Um, okay, so that's one thing uh, that becomes a sort of issue. We'll come back to that. The second thing... Uh, about this particular one in chapter 7, when you get to the, that long interpretation I read, there was something glaringly missing from the interpretation, which probably no one caught. Because <laughs> I didn't read the vision in the first place. But if you've seen the vision, the main focus of the vision is on the fourth beast. Right? And the little horn. And Daniel even asked the interpreter, could you, could you kind of spell out in a little more detail this fourth beast? Because that was really wacky. And you get a lot of information on the fourth beast. But what's missing is a reference to what exactly replaced that little horn, which is in the vision, but not in the lengthy interpretation. And that thing that answers the little horn, you know, the, the throne of the Ancient of Days is set up, to judge the beasts. And fire pours out from his throne and burns the fourth beast like that. And the little horn with it. But that means then the little horn's sovereignty is, and we mentioned last week, the horn is little because, of course, he's deceptive. That's the point. If you have one little horn and seven big horns sticking out of a, a, a beast's head and you're going to fight it, you're going to grab the big horns try and save yourself, and you're not going to think the little horn is much of a threat. But in this case, that's exactly the strategy. The little horn stays little on purpose, but he's the biggest threat by far. So, what answers to this once his sovereignty is lost? The Ancient of Days turns, and coming on the clouds of heaven is the Son of Man, and he receives the sovereignty, not just of one part of the world, but of the whole world. And his kingdom is everlasting. But I read the interpretation. Did you see any reference to the Son of Man? I didn't see any reference to the Son of Man. Did Daniel say, oh, by the way, one more thing, uh, about that Son of Man figure. Could you spell that out for us? No. 
and consequently there is disagreement on what that Son of Man is in the scholarship. Not so much among Christians, but in the scholarship, you know. And what happens is you go, uh, when you are like me, if you had to take classes, you know, from people uh, through the years who were um, uh, non-Christians and scholars, Hebrew scholars and so on, they would say, now, the Christians read it this way. Because, how shall we say it? They're in a narrow-minded bubble. This, don't say it that, they maybe don't say it quite expressly, but basically, that's the issue. But, the broader, unbiased, objective world of scholarship, they see the Son of Man differently. Okay? They see the Son of Man as what? As simply the representation of all these people. Because when we saw the throne in the vision, there were thousands times thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand people, the saints of the Most High God, that are out in front of the throne. And when God goes to give the authority of the little horn that he's had and give it to somebody, he gives it to the Son of Man, yes, coming on the clouds. But when you get to the interpretation, it doesn't say he gives it to the Son of Man, it just says he gives the, 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 the authority to the people, the saints of the Most High God. So all the people of Israel and all those who have joined them, they're the ones then who will, who will uh, govern the world. Okay? I was going to say, it's nearly impossible, right, to listen and to listen to like both a horn honking and uh, it's, just, it's pretty much impossible. Listen, might as well just tell a joke or whatever. Uh, actually, then we would listen. That's <laughs> insightful. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that's the way uh, often then uh, this is understood. Of course, the Christians will, will look at it, rightly so, okay, as saying, well, um, but uh, Jesus quoted this verse, actually, from Daniel 7, in referring to himself at his trial in front of the Sanhedrin. So, the Christian is going to see that and say, but it's this, it was Jesus, you know, because <laughs> Jesus said that. You can imagine that's not very effective in, in a scholarly journal to just say, well, yeah, but Jesus said this, so that's it. Uh, it would be more effective, by the way, to say something like, the fact that the evangelists include this in the Gospels is proof that at least some of the Jews in Jerusalem in the first century did understand this figure to be so-and-so. Okay? That's probably the way, way to do it. Um, Alright, so you get that sort of controversy. This one's not so bad, really. I don't think this one's that hard. Because um, the fact that the interpretation isn't given isn't really that relevant because there's a ton of things in these visions where the interpretation never mentions them again. They're in the vision, but they're not in the interpretation. This is not uh, super valuable to tell us it's not in the interpretation. You don't have to just assume that, 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 that you just rule out the Son of Man as an individual figure and just count the Son of Man as representing the whole people or something. Uh, Secondly, I'm not sure that it makes a lot of sense that you have uh, thousands and thousands of people out in front of the throne, and then the next image is the Ancient of Days giving the government over to... Why didn't you just give it to those people? If that's, who you, if that's who it is, just give it to those people in the vision. But in the vision, there's a separate figure who comes. And of course, he is the Son of Man, which by definition means he's human. That's why you call him a Son of Man son of Adam. He is human. But he's different because he's 
coming on the clouds, which is a very common metaphor in Scripture for a divine figure. It's divine figures who come on the clouds. So, he's not just a typical human, even in the actual internal logic of the vision. He is a human, a singular human, but he's coming on the clouds. And he is granted the governance of the whole world. Now, if you had been an ancient Jew in the days of the exile, having read uh, Samuel and Kings and having read Isaiah's prophecies and so on, you knew exactly who the Son of Man was. It wasn't a mystery. There's no controversy for them. Who was everybody looking for, according to whether you're uh, reading Isaiah or whatever? Yes, the, the house of David would end, right? Go ahead, David. Yes, of course the Messiah. The house of David was ended. But all these promises like Isaiah gave, that yes, the stump, the tree of the house of David would be cut down to a stump, but eventually a sprout would come out of that stump. From Jesse, the stump of Jesse, that's David's father. And eventually there would be a king out of the house of David who would restore the whole of Israel and who would have the governance of the whole world. His kingdom would have no end, it says. So there's no mystery for the ancient Jew reading the account. If there is one figure who is going to be granted the governance of the whole world and the restoration of Israel, it will obviously be the Messiah, son of David himself. It doesn't need to be spelled out in the interpretation. It is, of course, a given in the original context. And Jesus is interpreting this exactly that way. For after all, he's applying it to himself as the son of David and Messiah. All right, so some basic principles after identification. So you identify things, yes, you decode things like that. I'm just showing you how to do little bits uh, of it and showing how sort of what, what comes into doing that. The second thing are, are, I guess, what you'd call progressions in the visions themselves. Um, so we sort of already showed that. I don't think we need to go real long into that. But how you had a vision earlier in the book, in chapter 2, and it gave a little bit of information that you could apply to the story that mirrors it in the second half of the book. And that would inform the way you looked at it. But then at the same time, if you look at the first vision again, and you see this giant uh, human and a statue, and a rock gets cut out of the mountain and thrown at it and destroys it, it does not destroy the legs and leave everything else there. Right? It's not like it wipes out its legs and then from the waist up it's still just levitating there. It's all destroyed at the same time. But when you get to chapter 7, these beasts and the fourth beast, it says very specifically in the interpretation that the fourth beast is destroyed but the first three are allowed to remain. And they're paralleling, of course, the earlier parts of the body, the ones that are up above the legs. But here, in other words, the fourth beast is taken out, but the others are allowed to remain. And what that means is that the second vision is giving us a little bit of extra added information of clarity on exactly how that judgment will proceed, whereas in the first vision it's a little bit more generic. So the additional visions are adding new information 
into a kind of comprehensive vision. You're looking at the same vision, in other words, from different angles through different lenses, if you want to say it that way. Which helps to explain the little horn thing. Remember I mentioned that controversy? You didn't think I forgot that, did you? You get the little horn, yes, in chapter 7. And he has certain traits and certain characteristics. And he's clearly at the end. For the very government of God is established to destroy him. And then the government is turned over to Messiah. That's clearly the end. As you get to the end of the book, it's actually called the time of the end. And is paired with the great vision of the resurrection of all people from the dead which isn't mentioned until the final vision. Adding more information in to that final vision. So chapter 7 takes you all the way to the end in its vision. But in chapter 8, the ram and the goat is not actually providing a vision of the end. It's just the second and the third beast. It's the middle beast. And there ends. But it so happens that the third beast, when we get to the Greeks and we talk about this little horn, uh, I should have said earlier that the first little horn, there's ten horns originally. The little horn wipes out three of the horns and then takes over their place. So there's a finish result of seven horns, one little one. But in the goat, where you had the one big horn originally, and then it's got four horns. The first one is broken, and four horns come up, so you got four horns. And then the little horn comes out of the four. The four are gone, and there's one little horn. That is to say, it's not like the it's not like the ten horn, seven horn scenario, right? Even even an eighth grader, no offense to eighth graders, even an eighth grader could read that and see this little horn's coming out of very different circumstances from the other one, just since they're all said, the horns are said to be kings and so on. It's different circumstances. But yet it's still called little horn. Why? Because the little horn of the third beast that Daniel goes into great detail in, and when you get to chapter 8, again, we're not reading it, but there's much more information about that little horn in chapter 8 than there is about the little horn in chapter 7. It's adding a lot of new information. But, what it's doing is providing a kind of pattern, a template, to understand the little horn that will come out of the fourth beast later. That is to say that the earlier little horn does a lot of things that are similar, that are a kind of prototype of what that little horn at the time of the end will do. In the same way that one can look across history and see that uh, you know Napoleon did certain things, and you can apply that to a later sovereignty and say they took some of the same things as Napoleon or whatever. Mussolini, of course, tried to revive uh, himself as a Caesar, didn't he? As a Roman Caesar, he he used the template even of the Caesars to try and influence the way he made decisions and run Italy in World War II. So the little horn becomes a kind of template that gets used a few different times to de depict this one. Uh, uh, figure. And even in the book of uh, 2 Thessalonians, if I could just read it, uh, we're almost done, a few minutes. Uh, if you look at 2 Thessalonians, let me just read a few things uh, that are said here. It says, um, 
uh, Paul, of course, writing, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, you'll note the line, He's coming from heaven. Okay? You remember that Son of Man? Where was He again? Where did we find Him? On the clouds of heaven. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, what came out from that throne in Daniel 7 to destroy the fourth beast? Fire. Um, okay, let me read a little bit further. Oh, I'm sorry. I should add this. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. What did Daniel refer to when I was out in front of the throne that shared in the government? The saints. You see how Paul is using the very language of Daniel's vision. And then in chapter 2, uh, when talking about the, uh, the day of the Lord, the, the day of final judgment, the time of the end, Paul says, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Hmm? And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He's talking about an individual, a singular figure, a man of lawlessness a son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Now, we didn't read it, but that is sim very similar to the description in Daniel chapter 8 of the little horn. You see how Paul is taking the descriptions of the little horn and applying them to the time of the end and using it as a framework for understanding the uh, Jesus and some figure, a little horn, who will come with deception. I didn't read that part, but he comes with deception, deceiving the world, and uh, uh, Jesus will have to come in order to put his government down. So... Um, Nice little reminder as believers, not just the bells, but a nice little reminder that the, uh, when the New Testament offers commentary on these visions, <laughs> as a Christian, that is the interpretation of the interpretation. You understand? If Paul and Jesus are offering interpretations of the visions and the interpretations of the visions, then that's like, uh, that's like in calculus when you could go to the end of the book and you could say, oh, here's the answer. The answer is, I hated that sometimes. The answer is 12. You know, the problem is, you know, 3 times x to the 4th plus y to the 3rd, you know, this and you just get one little number. But that is telling you something. That tells you that's the answer. What you've got to do is figure out how they got there. And uh, for my part, I find that if I take the New Testament seriously and accept its answer and then do the hard work of figuring out how it got there, I always end up very impressed with how careful the readers of the New Testament were and how sophisticated their interpretations and how validated these visions were. I'd love to talk more about telescoping, what's called telescoping. I won't get into that because we don't have time. And... Uh, I'll just leave just a, uh, one final little step process for what it's worth, which is uh, the, the key to these visions, I think, in general, is number one, don't read beyond what's written. Don't read beyond what is written. Little phrase in First Thess 
1 Corinthians 4 says, Think not beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what's actually written. Number two, don't go underneath what is written. Don't go less than what is written. Some people just throw their hands up. Oh, there's so much controversy, I'm not going to... Which just means I'm lazy and don't want to do the work. But make sure you don't read less than what's actually spelled out. But don't read more than that either. Third, make sure you pay attention to the internal logic logic of the visions. We didn't again do that today so much, but the internal logic is crucial to understanding the subsequent interpretations. And then finally, use the New Testament like a cheat. Use it to find the answers to the big things. Jesus uh, identifying himself as that Son of Man is a huge piece of the puzzle. It also helps us to understand something about the fourth beast and so on, as he stood before the governments of the Sanhedrin and the Roman government and so on. So, use where the New Testament does comment on it, use their interpretations as your, you know that's the end, but not everything is filled in, and you don't always understand how they got there, so that's where trying to understand the ways of God come in and why we put the hard time back into these details in Daniel, because uh, they're assuming them when they offer these interpretations in the New Testament. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the light and for the revelation that comes from paying uh, heed to these things, and may they ultimately uh, impact us. The writer John said in his first letter that he uh, who is a confident of the Lord's coming will purify himself in anticipation. And we pray all these things would help to remind us that if we're going to be called the saints, the holy ones, then we ought now to take seriously our own personal holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.